We never really made an effort to bring our ideals of democracy and rule of law to Afghanistan. There was never any effort to bring that. What we did was kind of unwittingly exported the version of the American government system that we are currently experiencing. And that is where I see Afghanistan as a very sobering mirror that is being held up to us today. I'm Marianne Williamson, and welcome to the Transform Podcast, where we will examine the forces of chaos that threaten to destroy us, and the acts of love that can make the whole thing transform. Tuesday, 9, 47 a.m. Hi, baby. I'm, baby, you have to listen to me carefully. I'm on a plane that's been hijacked. I'm on the plane. I'm calling from the plane. I want to tell you I love you. Please tell my children that I love them very much. This, Justin, you were looking so sorry, at, a, obviously, a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capabilities of the Taliban regime. The United States invaded Afghanistan in 2001 in response to the 9-11 attacks. Our goal was to topple the Taliban's government and to rout out the secret hideaways of al-Qaeda. We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbored them. The U.S. Constitution explicitly assigns to Congress the role of declaring war. But after the 9-11 attacks, Congress basically gave to the president, whoever the president might be, the authority to do whatever was necessary to quote-unquote fight terrorism. And not only George Bush, but every president since, has expanded on that authority to the point where Congress has willingly allowed itself to be peripheralized in the effort to fight terrorism. I frankly think we have overblown the danger of terrorism from the beginning. Sarah Chase is a former journalist with NPR who covered the war in Afghanistan. I'm not saying that 9-11 was not horrific, but I just think that in comparison with the damage that has been caused by these money maximizers, compared to our health, to the health of the planet, and to our lives, you know, as many people committed suicide in the wake of the crash of 2008, as were killed in the terrorist attacks of 9-11. So I actually think that terrorism has been a distraction from the real issues that we need to be focusing on as a nation and as people. Both our military and our civilian leadership spoke about the war only in military terms, and we, the American people, pretty much went along with that. They were applying ferocious forms of brute force, followed by more ferocious forms of brute force, all of which ultimately led to the realization that all that brute force was futile. 
For the United States waged war in Afghanistan, and we didn't really even try to wage peace. We destroyed things, but we created very little. Lara Jadid is a veteran of two tours of duty in Afghanistan. My unit was sent to train the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police. And the 82nd Airborne Division doesn't know how to train anybody. The 82nd Airborne Division knows how to do exactly one thing, smashes stuff. It was, there were some real you know, challenges in training, I think, in the first place. So what my unit ended up doing was doing all the missions themselves and then saying that the Afghans did it, but with our help, like we were in support roles. And that wasn't what was happening. Sarah Chase. What were we doing creating a conventional army in Afghanistan with people who knew how to fight a guerrilla war <laughs> and were fighting against guerrillas? Why did we turn them into a conventional army that was bound to be completely dependent on expensive materiel and American, you know, trainers and maintenance people and things like that? What is becoming more and more clear is that we made the same fatal error in Afghanistan that we made in Vietnam. The primary architect of the war in Vietnam, Defense Secretary under both Kennedy and Johnson, Robert McNamara, famously said shortly before his death, we didn't know the people of Vietnam. We didn't know their history. We didn't know their culture. We didn't know their religion. What hubris, what arrogance the United States displayed not only in its failure to truly know the people in Vietnam, but then, so tragically, the same way in Afghanistan. When I first went there, there was a real excitement in the 70s that they, they were going to finally join the modern world. Tom Freston is a media executive who set up Moby Media, the first post-Taliban television and radio stations in the country. Uh, Kabul was only 400,000 people, and uh, it was part of it looked like some old medieval city, but the people were excited to be part and connected to the modern world. You'd see women in miniskirts in Kabul in the 1970s, and uh, there was also, you know, National Women's Week. They would have a lot of events for women. Uh, that all, of course, went away with the wars. I mean, it, once you got out of Kabul, it was still quite a conservative country. Joe Cirincioni is senior fellow at the Quincy Institute and former president of the Plowshares Fund. We didn't listen to the people of Afghanistan. We didn't listen to what they wanted. And we, we tried to impose an American construct, a centralized government. Well, the, the last time Afghanistan had a centralized government that lasted was during when the Greeks invaded around 350 B.C. and stayed for about 150 years. That was the last time there was a sustained central government. This is not the, the culture, the experience of the Afghan people. Tom Preston. We set up a centralized state where the, uh, the president would get to appoint the governors in each province rather than the people in the province electing their own leaders, which which is just a, made things rife for corruption. And we picked and sided with the warlords and the sort of power brokers who had ransacked the country that almost led to the Taliban in the first place. So we aligned with the wrong people, set up the wrong kind of constitution, and then we laid this heavy military footprint in place. Sarah Chase. What they had done was kind of connect with the warlords whom the Taliban had kicked out of the country. 
back in 1994. And these were people who were responsible for a kind of chaotic, violent, um, extortionate mayhem during the late, uh, I would say during the very early 1990s after the Soviet Union pulled out. So the one thing that Afghans were grateful to the Taliban for was kicking these people out of the country. Everyone I talked to said that. They detested the Taliban, but at least they got rid of the warlord. So what did we do? We allied with those very same warlords and brought them back into the country and put them in position as governors of the major provinces. Large Adid. I didn't see a lot of excitement for our presence in those areas. There were, of course, people who wanted us there, people on the base who certainly said they wanted us there, but I didn't see a lot of, uh, I didn't see a lot of buy-in where I was. They kept talking about security, but they didn't mean security against the Taliban. They meant security for people against the militias who were roaming around that we, the United States, had armed, that we had dressed in U.S. Army uniforms, that were loyal to a man who had imposed himself as governor, in fact, against President Karzai's wishes at the time, and were, you know, I mean, one kid told me that his cousin was riding his bicycle and the, these militiamen wanted some money from him. No, I think they wanted his bicycle, if I remember correctly. And he wouldn't give it to them, and so they beat him up. And then they took his bicycle. This is the summer of 2002. And these people, and I had, you know, half a dozen specific stories like that. And these people were dressed in U.S. Army uniforms. And so what were Afghans to think? other than this must have been how we wanted things to go. These are, these are people who believed us, they believed the words that we said, and just, just like in Vietnam, we didn't do it, and just like in Iraq, it's, we have a pattern of doing this, and, and people believe us every time, and that's the worst of it. And that's something that, I mean, even when I was over there, I have this very vivid recollection of a human intelligence operator coming in, just screaming, because, Orders had gone down on high based on his intelligence that was gonna it was gonna burn his source. They were gonna figure out who it was because he had information that he could not have gotten any other way. And this this guy who was I mean, he was a special forces guy. This is like a hardened person, and he was as angry as I've ever seen anyone at that betrayal. And this happened all the time. And it just it's a you also hit I think it's the same flip side of the coin as the disrespect for what they want. It's this feeling that we know best and that we can make these sacrifices and we have no right. As it turns out, we now realize that the, the, the rural population of Afghanistan couldn't wait to get the United States out. They wanted an end to this war and they were more comfortable with the kind of security that the Taliban provided than the kind of security the Afghan, Afghan police force and the Afghan military were saying, as they, as they said, you know, we'll pay a tax to the Taliban, but we won't be stopped every few miles on the road and asked for a bribe from the security forces or the, the, the police forces that were there. Study after study that happened in the last 20 years that would be done by uh, Asia Foundation or others would find that the support for the Taliban was like 15%. That was their approval rating. The problem was the, the government had a lower approval rating. One could say that if they had a government that wasn't as corrupt and as predatory as the one they set up, that the, the Taliban never would have made these inroads. It's almost like the Afghan government was the Taliban's best friend. While the United States likes to think that we were doing nation-building, 
More and more people are recognizing that we did very little nation building, in fact. For what is a nation, certainly if it's one that the United States can feel part of helping to create, if it is not a democracy? And the government that we created, that we supported, and that we enabled was anything but a democracy. If then Vice President Biden had been concerned about corruption, did he have thoughts about how we might address that? Once his boss, President Obama, had decided to stay in Afghanistan and to increase presence of troops on the ground, I didn't see any evidence of Vice President Biden wading in to say, in that case, alongside the troops that we're sending in, we need to do this, that, and the other thing to address the problem of corruption. That I never saw coming out of his office. Congress has basically abandoned its oversight responsibility over the Pentagon right now and, and over this militarized foreign policy. And they've been doing it under Democrats. They've been doing it under Republicans. Republicans think it's good politics to go forward and present the image of a strong Republican Party that's back in the generals. And the Democrats themselves are afraid of national security. They don't want to touch this. They think of it as a weakness, as a distraction from their domestic agenda. So you had 20 years during this global war on, on terror of basically Congress just writing a blank check for the military for everything they need. What we are learning now, of course, is that the Armed Services Committee, any congressional oversight, was so lax concerning this war that while we were losing, while we were doing a terrible job, that while we were losing soldiers, while tens of thousands of Afghans were dying, congressional oversight amounted to little more than having some generals come down to the Capitol, answer some tough questions, put on a happy face, say we're turning the corner, then leave, and senators and congresspeople basically washing their hands of the whole affair. Thanks to our military and our allies, and the brave fighters of Afghanistan, the Taliban regime is coming to an end. But while his top military man sees a Taliban resurgence, President Bush says he sees the Allies taking the fight to a determined enemy. It has been a tough month in Afghanistan, but it's also been a tough month for the Taliban. America and its allies have already boosted troop levels in Afghanistan, and more are slated to arrive next year. But the problem for America is so many are deployed in Iraq. I have determined that it is in our vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan so that they can target the insurgency and secure key population centers. McChrystal told U.S. lawmakers he is confident he will be able to report real progress by December 2010. And by the following summer of July 2011, I think the progress will be unequivocally clear to the Afghan people. Not only did the United States support a corrupt Afghan government, but let's also realize what they did in terms of quote-unquote building up the Afghan army. Afghan fighters are known historically to be among the best guerrilla fighters in the world. So why didn't we try to build an Afghan army in the tradition of the Afghan military? We didn't, because that would not have made $2 trillion for the military-industrial complex back at home. We spent about $2.3 trillion, $2.3 trillion in this war. $2 trillion of it went directly to U.S. contractors. 
So while this was a horrible war for many people, some people got very rich off of this war. The contractor stocks went through the roof, their profits increased. There was a 1,500% return on, uh, on their, their stock prices during these 20 years. So there was a lot of profits were made in this war, selling the kinds of products that the U.S. government would buy, but not what the Afghan people actually needed. It's not just the military that has a lot to account for when it comes to the war in Afghanistan. The same can be true, of course, with congressional as well as presidential oversight. And then there's the media. Between 2015 and 2019, annual coverage by the major media outlets in the United States to the Afghanistan war was an average of 58 minutes. But then again, do you expect a television network who has advertisers like Northrop Grumman and Raytheon to start doing some deep digging into how much money they're making on a war? We now have the, the largest military budget that we've had in the United States since the end of World War II, with the one exception of the, the year right after the Iraq invasion. So it's bigger than during the Korean War, bigger than during the Vietnam War, bigger than during the Reagan buildup. It is an enormous military budget, and even though we're leaving Afghanistan and ending a war, it is growing. It is obscene what's going on in Washington. For some, this was really about establishing a major military presence in the Middle East. Afghanistan was one part of the, the, the board for them. Iraq was the other, Syria, Libya, Yemen. For some, this was all about projecting American military power deep into the Middle East and then deep into Asia, using the, the Middle East as a springboard. This was a, a terrible idea from the beginning. And I was delighted to see President Biden finally have the courage to end this war and in his speech announcing the end of the war to say that it was the beginning of a process, a turning of the page, he said, where we would turn away from 20 years of major military interventions. I'm the fourth president who has faced the issue of whether and when to end this war. When I was running for president, I made a commitment to the American people that I would end this war. And today, I've honored that commitment. This is an extremely popular decision. You wouldn't know that if you just listened to the talking heads in Washington, D.C. The pundits in Washington disapprove of the decision. They, they're more interested in protecting their own reputations and their privileges than they are in looking at what really went on with this war and why they were so wrong over all these years. Here's why President Biden is making a catastrophic mistake in pulling out our remaining troops from Afghanistan. I, I personally think that leaving Afghanistan was a massive mistake. I mean, I believe that a handful of uh, Americans and some air support should have stayed in the country for years to come. Is it a mistake? I, you know, I think it is, yeah. I think because I think the consequences are going to be unbelievably bad. The vast majority of Americans, well over 70%, recognized that it was time to leave Afghanistan and that it was probably time to leave a long time ago. But many Americans are deeply unhappy about the way we exited. 
absolute chaos in Kabul right now after the Taliban took over the presidential palace, attempting to form a transitional government. Civilians, meantime, trying to flee have been running onto the tarmac of the Hamid Karzai International Airport. The video, definitely shocking. Here you can see Afghan citizens chasing a C-17 aircraft, even clinging to its landing gear as the U.S. military plane attempts to depart. While the president calls the evacuation a huge success, while it is claimed that there's simply no way to know that the Taliban would be able to take over the country so quickly, the truth is that obviously no strategic exit was ever planned. This has had tragic consequences. Hi, I'm Ubedullah Bahir. I'm a lecturer at the American University in Afghanistan, and I am one of the few people that uh, stayed back and were trying to make a difference with our voices and with what we can believe and stand by. There are families here under threat um, whose um, younger members have left and they are in the US. They are safe, but their families are not and their families receive threats and are under danger. There are scholars at risk here. Uh, there are people who are smart, they're intellectuals, they can help shape future generations, but they can't do that if they stay in Afghanistan. Why aren't Western universities opening their doors to these academics? Although we did evacuate over 100,000 people, way more than that needed evacuation and deserved evacuation, given not only their citizenship, but as Afghans, the help that they had given to the United States and our allies. This has been particularly tragic because clearly the United States did not prioritize for evacuation the most vulnerable Afghan women. Zainab Salbi is an Iraqi-American women's rights activist. She's the founder of Women for Women International, a humanitarian organization that has helped over 500,000 women, victims of the most heinous abuses of war, rebuild their lives. I got a call the week, the day before um, the Taliban took over Kabul, and I get a call from someone, a colleague I sit with in about another board, and he says, Zainab, the Taliban have been killing, have been assassinating women steadily in the last year, women leaders. And now we have captured a list, what's called a kill list, that the Taliban have put together of the most prominent women to kill them and we need to get them out. And these women, may I say, were not in any priority of the U.S. government. I was, I, I don't know what's the expression, I, I'm angry. I'm angry because there's all these speeches about women's rights and we believe in women and all of that. When, when, when it's in this critical moment, these women leaders were not in the priority of the U.S. government to, ev to be evacuated. All these talks about women's rights, all these speeches, you know, people give about women's rights, when, forgive the expression, but when shit hit the fan, they were not there. For me to witness the, you know, sort of the the blossoming, the blossoming of women and like, you know, taking on the role and, and, and going and becoming judges and ministers and politicians and journalists and, and you know, poetess and all of that and thriving and, you know, singing and then 
and then we leave them abandoned and crying. And I have like texts from staff, right, left and center saying we have never cried as much as we are crying the last two weeks. You would think that these are discussions that have happened and ended and the world has moved on. And then you restart with, should women be allowed to work? How can we convince the Taliban that they too deserve to be in the workforce, that economic prosperity is directly linked to this? this or have any uh, rational argument or dialogue with the Taliban? Is there any point to it to begin with? The Taliban blitzer of 11 days uh, took over Afghanistan with such a swift and quick takeover that it shocked the Taliban themselves as well. They, they didn't expect to be able to take over the whole country so quickly. There was a negotiating process that had been going on for months that was not happening in Doha, that was happening, you know, in the provinces um, and with top Afghan military um, officers. And I do have to say that a lot of my Afghan friends were pretty surprised that it went this quickly. The Taliban are not good people, but that's not the point. The point is the United States did not win the hearts and minds of the Afghan people. Yes, we built some bridges. Yes, we built some clinics. Yes, we did some things taken out of context were all things of which we could feel proud. But too often we would build those things in areas where then we would leave and the Taliban would come in, destroy them, and actually punish the people of Afghanistan for having received these gifts from the Americans. It is much more difficult and much more result-inducing if you sit down with the Taliban and engage with them. Don't recognize them, but engage with them. Uh, help support the Afghan people. Uh, and there are a gazillion ways to do that. And the only thing left for us right now is to engage in dialogue to get the youth to think about the situation and understand and comprehend and process the changes that have happened in Afghanistan. So we're trying to work towards that. and. Um, we're trying to give the Taliban time and we're hoping that before it's too late they realize their own limitations and realize that there's a lot about governance and government that they don't understand and they would need um, people who have experience and technocrats who can help them out. Um, and we're hoping that, that uh, facing that absurd and arduous task and challenge, they realize that they really need to listen to other people and listen to reason. Stay engaged with the Taliban government because you know what? These Taliban are not capable of governing. My biggest lessons of this war, many of one of many, is that we went about it from kill as many Taliban as possible. And if you kill them, we'll be okay. As opposed to the more we kill, the more people, the more Taliban will, will rise up, their sons and their grandsons and all of that. I know it's difficult to believe, but Underneath that turban and beard is an actual person that grew up to believe in ideas that never belonged to them. And today we're face to face. It's just us who grew up in a very different, or not just specifically me, but the liberals within Kabul are face to face with the conservative radical Taliban. And there is no other option. There is no opting out. There is either coexisting or going to war again. Many people say that there was a winner in this war, Pakistan. The Pakistani government was arming and training the resurgent Taliban. 
And the United States government was providing the Pakistani government with a billion dollars a year in military assistance. It's the most tortured thing you can imagine. The, the, the Pakistani ISI is what reconstituted the Taliban starting in 2003. Uh, to my knowledge, there was never any serious pressure on Pakistan to end its support for Taliban. Some consultations, some words, but uh, we never cut a dime of assistance to Pakistan because of this. It was one of the greatest blunders of the war. So in a large extent, this was not a, a military defeat as much as it, as it was a political defeat for the United States and the, the unpopular government we tried to impose on the country. Now the task for Biden is to stick to it, because i got to tell you, you, you're here in Washington, you understand, this town does not want to end this, these wars. This town does not want to turn the page. So we're at the beginning of a major policy struggle on this issue central to, uh, to the national security of the United States. Our military and executive and congressional leadership would like to just move on now. As a matter of fact, although the president has declared that he wants to redefine what national security means in the 21st century, shortly after our exit from Afghanistan, Congress approved and the president endorsed an actual $24 billion added expenditure to our defense establishment. No one should kid themselves that the military-industrial complex has any plans to slow down. While they might not want to see, and for good reason, any serious investigation into their own roles in what happened in Afghanistan. It is incumbent upon all of us to not forget what happened here, to seek to more deeply understand what happened here, to hold accountable people who are responsible for the debacle that occurred here, and to do what we can to continue to support people in Afghanistan who are hurt the most. This country has been suffering for 40 years, and that's three generations uh, that have lost their lives to this war, their childhoods to this, these wars. I mean, look at the videos of the Taliban. They go to parks and they're men 30 odd years old. They're sitting on swings and losing their minds to the happiness and the joy that they have there. That means that this is a generation that was robbed of their childhood because of these wars. There is a law of alchemy that says nothing of great worth can be achieved without giving up something of equal worth in return. Um, it says that the, the genius of Einstein led to Hiroshima. Um, and if you flip that around, it means for good times to come, there have to be a lot of bad times and a lot of sacrifices that are given. And I fear that it's going to take so long and so much more sacrifice for that transition to ever eventually actualize it to something better. Uh, I don't know, Marianne. I just find this so tremendously disappointing and heartbreaking, you know. It's, you know, Kabul, I was sort of a city on some kind of binge and it kind of just went off the rails and went back 25 years or went back several centuries. It's hard to imagine that all the things you worked on and built, that I, and I didn't do so much, but the Afghans did, and, uh, you know, apart from the government, this just goes away so it, it, it can go away so quickly. I still have faith in them, and I do believe that there will be a way that there will be a reaction to this.
No one here wants America to stay in Afghanistan. It's okay to to withdraw. It's okay to to end the occupation, but do it responsibly. We entered Afghanistan by American wish and will, and we exit with responsibility. And at the end of the day, I feel America had lost its moral ground that the world really did respect and the world really believed in. America as a reliable country, as the country that everyone looks up to, respect. America 20 years later lost that. We tried to remake Afghanistan in, frankly, the image of what we thought Afghan society was, which is violent warlords, you know, that kind of thing. We never really made an effort to bring our ideals of democracy and rule of law to Afghanistan. There was never any effort to bring that. What we did was kind of unwittingly exported the version of the American government system that we are currently experiencing. And that is where I see Afghanistan as a very sobering mirror that is being held up to us today. The Transform podcast has been produced by John Ahrens and Lauren Selsky. Sound design and original music by John Ahrens. And to hear my full interviews with the guests featured on the podcast, go to mariannewilliamson.substack.com. I'm Marianne. Thanks for listening.